I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. In this episode, No-Till Farmer editor Frank Lesseter chats with Canadian no-tiller and strip-tiller Brian Newcomb. Brian has a diverse operation that includes a dairy, chickens, and about 1,800 acres of corn, soybeans, and wheat spread out over 110 separate small plots. His operation, Cornwallis Farms, has been in his family since 1761. It sits in a fertile microclimate in Nova Scotia and drains into the Bay of Fundy, which was designated as one of North America's seven natural wonders in 2014. Brian uses a multi-species cover crop mix and has been working on a three-year analysis of planting green. Plus, we'll share a story about the early days of no-till in Ohio, and Frank explains why some people hate no-till. Now, without further ado, here are Frank and Brian. Okay, we're sitting here today with Brian Newcomb from uh, Nova Scotia. Brian, welcome. Thanks for uh, doing this with us. Tell us a little about your operation. What's going on? Well, I'm the ninth generation to be on our farm. Our farm started in uh, 1761, and my boys will be the 10th generation to farm on our our homestead. Uh, We have a diverse operation. We have dairy, layers, broilers, and crop about 1,800 acres. And we have our own feed mill, so we produce all our own feed for the livestock. Pam and I were at your place, and you were milking at the time maybe 70, 80 cows. Yep. Two robot milkers. Two robot milkers we put in there last year. Yeah. I heard somebody tell us yesterday that in the U.S. they think maybe 3 to 5% of the cows are now being milked with robot milkers. Which... Yeah, I believe that because at home at least not quite half new barns are going in with the robots. Right. New, new installations are robots. And on the egg laying, how many egg laying hens you got? Uh, we have 20,000 laying hens. And how many broilers a year? 120,000 every six weeks. Every, so that's close to 800,000 or so. Yeah. So in six weeks, they're ready for market. Ready they come market. in at day one and yep. they're ready for market. Good. Yep. So how long have you been no-tilling? I think we started around late, late 90s. I graduated uh, university in uh, 91, so it took me a few years to get my feet on the ground and quickly learned I don't like plowing. <laughs> I never liked that and I didn't like the erosion that came from it, so that's when I started to, to do things differently. And then I've heard about the no-till farming conference and I went to that and careers from starts from there, I guess. Right. Now you and your brother split the responsibilities. You've got crops and dairy yep. and he's got the chickens and the, the feed, feed mill. mill. Yep. Okay, that's right. Correct. Crops. What crops? Corn, wheat, and soybeans are our big three because that's what we use to, to feed our livestock. Corn would be about uh, 700 acres, and wheat's three to 400, and soybeans about 500, and then we have uh, forages and pastures for the life for the dairy side as well. And you're both no-till and strip-till? No-till and strip-till. We do a little bit of uh, conventional tillage for, we live in an urban area, and some of the manures we cannot put on the ground and leave, so we do have to incorporate some of those in. 
So you cut some corn for silage, but not a lot of it. Huh? No, it's only about uh, 60 acres and then for silage. The rest of the corn goes to the chickens? The bulk of it goes to the chickens, a little bit of dry corn to the cows. But. Okay, and soybeans, you sell them or use them on the farm? No, we have our own soybean extruders, so we extrude the soybeans. Okay. Uh, it leaves the oil in and it treats the protein in the soybeans so it can be utilized by the, the chickens and the cows. Tell me about the uh, planter or drill you use with no-till. Just bought a 12-row Kenzie a couple years ago, and I just bought it with the basic finger meters on it because I knew I was going to strip it all off and I had all precision planning. So I went with the hydraulic downforce, individual row hydraulic downforce. I went with the V-drive v electric uh, seed meters. So I basically just stripped the planter down and put all the precision planning stuff on it. Because no-till, I really like the idea of that individual row downforce. Mm -hmm. It gives you the uniformity that maybe I wasn't getting with my old planter. How many rows? 12 rows. Okay, now you got an air seeder too? I have a 30-foot uh, deer air seeder. I bought that, uh, I think it was 2003. I still use that for my soybeans and I plant my winter wheat and my cover crop with that. So I know the planter does a better job planting beans, but the hidden power I can go with the two seeders and get it in the ground faster. So I still seed with my, my air drill with the beans. So I think you told me you had 110 fields, something yeah, like that. give or take. Average size, what, 15, 15 acres? 15 acres, yeah. Wow. I mean, down here in the Corn Belt, we use 15 acres at, at the end of the fields to turn around. <laughs> I know, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty daunting when we start because there's a lot, of, a lot of logistics with it and a lot of moving around and efficiencies aren't necessarily great on those small fields. That's where the uh, section control really pays for us because there's a lot of overlap. I can get on some of these odd-shaped fields, 12 to 15% overlap if I didn't have section control on my sprayer right. and seeder. So it's a huge savings for us. So when you first got started in no-till, you were were you in the zone-till system, the uh, Ross and yeah, three coulters? Yeah, no, I started uh, with the Cyclo K6 row planter, had the three coulters in front, and that's how I started. And then say, we, we're in a wetter, cooler area, so on our winter wheat ground, I had a hard time getting that ground warmed up. So then I went to start going with the strip till. I started with a six row Yetter Maverick unit, tried to get the soil warmed up for the winter wheat stubble. And then from there I went to, it was hard to get strip till done in the fall because the time the corn came off, it was usually the ground was too wet, so it would all be done in the spring. So then I went to the Dawn, 12 row Dawn unit with the cultures. Because I can go in there with the spring, I don't bring up a lot of cold wet soil with those cultures, so it's a little shallower zone prep on that. You uh, run an Apache sprayer, right? I met the Apache people down when I was at one of the conferences here, actually. Mm -hmm. And I went to their factory and had a tour of it, and I went from there, and I eventually got one that was 2010. I still have the same one I bought in 2010. One of the other things that's interesting among no-tillers who have invested in a self-propelled sprayer is, I mean, they, they seem to start using it more and more. Like, you've got, what, 1,800 acres? Yep. And I think you're spraying 5,000 acres a year? Yep. How are you using that sprayer? Well, great thing when I bought that, I brought the stream repairs to it with it. So instead of uh, applying dry on my winter wheat with the spinners, which is very ununiform and you get a lot of streaking, I put the streamer bears on, on the sprayer and the uniformity and the rate control, your, your rates are bang on. And it's a way to get more acres through your, through your sprayer too, right? Because you're putting on uh, UAN twice a year with your winter wheat. That's, that's another four or five hundred acres that you're covering with your, your sprayer. Cover crops. Tell us about how you got into cover crops. Well, like a lot of people, I wish I did 
sooner than I started. Like I said, when I first started, it was we always had the ground covered. If we had soybeans, we always tried to plant winter wheat behind that, and and the corn would have the stubble on it. But uh, but in the probably when some of the conferences we heard a little bit more about cover crops, so then I started incorporating uh, multi-mixes in, into my uh, winter wheat stubble after I took wheat off in August. That's the best time that for us to get a cover crop in because we have a two, three months of growing season after that, so I can get a good establishment. So I started uh, with two or three mixes, now I am with like a 10-way mix. And you know, I think you told me you use oats too. As kind I of use oats as, as a volunteer with it, just kind of give a little bit of bulk to it and cheapen the ration up a little bit. I try to keep it around 35 bucks an acre is my cost for cover crop seed, plus the cost of the seeder as well. So the oats will freeze out or not? The oats will freeze out, yep. So I'd like to talk to you for a minute about your mix. Yep. You're using some radishes. What do, you, what do they do for you? Uh, I think they, they scavenge uh, some nutrients for us. They establish pretty quick, so it gives you a good cover. And then they do die off, so they're not there in the spring, so that's another advantage for the radish. Using some pearl millet. Pearl millet, just to uh, get some grasses, the warm season grasses in there. They'll frost off in October. Same as a radish as well. Yeah. Sorghum sedan. Yeah. Yeah, just another grass in the mix to, to balance out the barleys. Sunflowers. Uh, I think it's just nice for the insects to attract the insects and pollinators, so we have some sunflowers in the mix. Hairy vetch. Hairy vetch, that's our, our main one. I like that one because it will overwinter and it'll, it'll grow in the spring and give us some nitrogen in the spring for the next year's crop. Winter lentils. Yeah, I like to have another winter winter uh, species in there that will survive, so between the hairy vetch and the winter lentils that will give us a couple that won't get frosted. Buckwheat. I find buckwheat germinates really fast, so it's one of the first things out of the ground, so that's what I like about buckwheat, and it's good for uh, getting uh, exchanging nutrients in the soil. You have something called dwarf forage rape. I like to pick some uh, cover crop varieties that uh, have a lot of seeds per pound, because I like to have a Six, seven hundred thousand seeds per acre. So in my mix, so some like sunflowers is a large seed and stuff. But I like to have a lot of uh, small seeded ones to try to get a good establishment. And then the last one I think is purple top turnip. Yeah, I find purple top turnip uh, germinates really well. I've used that on interseeding in in corn, just broad, broadcasting it at the five leaf stage, and that's actually one of the cover crops that actually does germinate very well, even if it's shaded. So. I throw that into the mix. So I wrote down that this mix would be about 13 pounds per acre, yeah. and then oats would be about 28 pounds per acre. Yeah. So what do the oats do for you? Uh, it's just a, it comes up germinates quick. I can get the soil biology likes the oats, and it's it's a little cheaper to cheapen up the mix a bit. And you said about 35 dollars. An acre. Is that U.S. money or that that's, funny Canadian? That's money? a funny Canadian money. So that'd be a bargain for you Americans. <laughs> When you're seeding this cover crop mix, have you got plates on the planter or is it an air seeder? The air seeder, so it just has different meters so I put in for the cover crop. Okay, and you got two compartments, you'll have oats in one compartment and the cover crop mix in another? Yeah, and work. as soon as that combine leaves the field, that seeder's in there because I, I want to get that in as quick as I can to get good growth going into the fall, get it well established. Because it's hard to, to plan October, November to get much growth, so. When are you taking off your corn silage? Corn silage comes off September, but I usually put winter wheat in the corn silage. Oh, so I could put a cover crop after the corn silage if I didn't put winter wheat in. But the important thing is you got the soil covered. The soil is covered as much as I can, like I say. Right. And if I could find a good way to, 
to get a cover crop in my cornland, that'd be even better. But okay. I guess I, I, I avoid using annual ryegrass just because I have a lot of wheat in my rotation. So I'm a little bit nervous about uh, getting control of that every year in the springtime because our springs can be cool and wet and timing is sometimes getting the ryegrass killed off. So I avoid the ryegrass in our rotation. Cover crops, most of your uh, land lease is more than one year or just one year? I try to get a minimum of three years because we apply lime and it takes three years for that lime to break down. So I like to have the land lease for at least three years so I get the value of my lime. But obviously a five year would be ideal because then you can start putting cover crops in, in some of those fields and you know you're going to have long enough to, to get the benefit of those cover crops too. So it gets tough when you got a one year lease on whether you can invest in these things. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, if I think I'm only going to have the land for one year, I'm not going to invest a lot of money in the cover crops and have someone else get all the benefit from it. Right, so. right. But it's the ones that I have good relationships with. and. A lot of my land, people I rent land from, they're pretty happy with the way I'm, I'm farming with uh, cover crops and, uh, and the no-till. They see the value in that. They see the, the land's not being eroded and they, they kind of like how we run that. We'll rejoin the conversation with Frank and Brian in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series. Martin Industries invented the No-Till Row Cleaner in 1990 and has been designing and manufacturing attachments and parts for no-till planters ever since. With solutions for every stage of the no-till planting process, Martin-Till planter attachments make it possible to plant into higher levels of residue and moisture. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. Before we get back to the conversation, Frank is going to share a little-known no-till farmer fact. Years ago, my wife Pam and I were touring one of the old plantations in southwest Virginia's Jamestown area. In the gift shop, there were a few Civil War bullets, pistols, horseshoes, and other relics for sale. Somehow the lady behind the counter heard me say something about no-till and she said, I hate no-till. When I asked why, she added, moldboard plowing always turns up a few Civil War relics that area farmers bring to us that we can make some money off with tourist sales. We don't get any of those old Civil War items from no-till fields. Now let's get back to our conversation with Frank and Brian Newcomb. A few years back, we had uh, Neil Kinsey talk here, and I think you've gone to some of his advanced soil courses, right? Yeah, I've right? taken his basic and then his advanced courses as well. What'd you get out of that? I like how, how he looks at it, like say, instead of feeding the, the plant, you're feeding the soil. So uh, that's kind of my mentality now, is I'm, I'm feeding the soil and I'll let the soil feed the plants instead of trying to feed the plants. So we're, we're being proactive, I'm trying to put my micronutrients down for my soil tests. I do a little bit of tissue sampling, but hopefully my nutrients are already there. I don't have to go in and kind of rescue the, the plant. The nutrients are there before the plant even needs it. Tell me, you mentioned manure usage. Tell us a little about how you use the manure from all mm -hmm. the livestock you got. That can be a challenge. You're getting manure on no-till and, and having uh, subdivisions and houses around. You got to be careful when you apply. Uh, the chicken manure we store inside just to keep the rain off it, so that makes it a little a little better, easier to spread, and, and the smell's not as bad that way. The liquid dairy, I put that on top of the grassland or before corn or soybeans in the spring. And the layer manure is, is the one manure I have certain fields I allocate that to because I have to work that in just because of the nuisance issue with it. 
So you told me that uh, you're doing kind of a three-year analysis on planting green. Yes. Tell me about your experience here and what you've learned and what you're going to. Well, you come and see the speakers and it looks great, it sounds great, but when you get back home and, and you actually have to drop that cedar into that cover crop, and the cover crop's you know a couple of feet high, it's, it's a pretty daunting uh, thought. So I said, well, like anything, you want to try it first. So I've done three years now where I take the cover crop that I put in after winter wheat and I either spray it in the fall and strip till it in the spring, and the next pass I left it and I planted green. And after three years, I found actually absolutely no yield difference between the two methods. So this year I didn't spray any of my cover crop off. I have uh, 300 acres of green cover crop that I'm gonna seed into next spring, so. What do you think you can save on nutrients? That's a great question, because that's what I started to look at in my third year is how much nitrogen am I getting from these cover crops? Because hairy vetch is a big percent of my uh, cover crop mix, so I should be able to get some nitrogen from that. So this year, on the conservative side, I dropped 40 units of N off my green planted strips compared to my other one, and I didn't see a yield difference on that. So maybe I can go 40, maybe I can go 60 or 80. It's, it's all testing from here to see how far I can drop that nitrogen rate and still get the same yield. How are you putting your nitrogen on with your corn? Uh, with a strip tiller, I was putting down 32% down with my Dawn unit. And with the, that's the thing with the cover crop, I'm not running the strip tiller through, so what I did the last couple of years was I used my Apache sprayer and I just streamed the 32 down before I planted. So I'm, I'm getting the same amount of N as I did with the strip tiller, but just with the streaming bars instead of the strip tiller. So you're not doing any side dressing? Uh, not with the corn planter, but if the screen really works, what I might look at doing is putting 32% uh, down, shooting it down on the closing wheels. So that'd be a way to get the nitrogen down and without having to run my strip tiller unit. Do you have any fertilizer concerns with uh, all the neighbors you have in your area? Or? It's more just the smell and the flies that you gotta be careful of when you're, you're applying it, you don't wanna. Right, right. GPS, tell us, you're in the GPS field? Yep, let's see, with that strip tiller, we, we went to RTK so we could have the same, same pass with the strip tiller and the planter. And when I bought my Apache sprayer, I, I got all the bells and whistles on that. I got the auto height, I got the auto steer, auto boom, auto sections, and so it's, it's pretty geared up. And same as my corn planter, I have section control for my starter liquid fertilizer on that. And then I have the uh, V-drives, which individually shuts off each row as they overlap. So Brian, you're, st you're up in the, the Bay of Fundy. Tell us a little about the tides, because I think these no-tours would be intrigued by what happens up there tide-wise. Yeah, it's incredib pretty incredible to see where we live, the tide comes in every 12 hours. So the water can drop 40 feet within 12 hours and be walking on the bottom of the ocean and then 12 hours later there's 40 feet of water where you were standing a second ago. So it's pretty neat to see and that happens twice a day every day. So it's a lot of water that flows in the bay. So when we go to Florida or someplace, we see the tide come in and go out and maybe it's three, four, five feet, but 40 feet? Yeah, I say we can walk out probably half a mile when the wires tides out. And then if you don't get, if you don't get back to the shore, it'll, it'll come in and, and chase you back to the shore. Yeah, I, I was reading recently someplace they were talking about the Gulf of Maine, and then they talked about the Fundy and said this is the highest tide change in the whole world. Yeah, that's correct. The Bay of Fundy is the highest tides right. in the world. Are you seeing any concerns about climate change? Where are you farm? Well, we noticed in the last bunch of years, it seems the 
The season has changed a little bit. Our spring's a little later and a little wetter, and our falls are a little warmer and a little later, so it's almost like a bit of a shift for us. Normally, we'll, we can start planting in the end of April, but it seems like we're getting into the early May now, just because of the cold wet. But the Septembers have been really great and fantastic, so our season has kind of shifted. But when, So now, when would be your typical corn and soybean harvest? What Usually, month? we'll start soybeans the last uh, week of September, and corn would be third week of October. Okay, but you're not concerned if you have to harvest corn in the November, are you? No, we didn't. People were uh, harvesting corn uh, the day before Christmas this year. Right. Because we had a lot of rain this year in October and November, and it was hard to get. Then we had snow, and then and the corn went down because we had a lot of winds this year, too. So it was a bad combination of, of weather events this year that uh, delayed harvest. So guys were having to wait for the snow to melt off to get the harvest finished. How about other farmers in the area? No tilling or strip tilling? Not to the extent we are. There's a lot of vegetable production in our area, so I think they find it challenging to, to no-till. But there are a lot of people who uh, no-till winter wheat. But the corn and soybeans, a lot of it's still conventionally. We're probably the, the main no-tillers in our area. Let's talk the economics of Canadian versus U.S. for a couple minutes here. We've got an oversupply of corn, soybeans, and wheat, and dairy. We got so much cheese in storage, we can't, dairy guys aren't doing good, but in Canada, you've kind of, are you more regulated? And yeah, there's a quota system there. You you have a certain amount of milk that you produce every year, and that kind of keeps the industry from over, overproduction and, and getting the prices where to the point where you're, you're losing money and, I don't see any farmers lose money. It's not a good situation. It's not good for the rural economy or anything. So we want to make sure that there's an entry there that's profitable for everybody, right? Right. It's a, so you got a, a quota like on dairy, yeah. on uh, eggs and broilers or not? Yeah, the eggs and broilers also. And how about crops? No crops is... Okay. Uh, so you know a year in advance how much milk you can turn out and how many eggs you can turn out and how many broilers you can produce. Yeah. Right. Hey, thanks very much. Uh, I grew up on a centennial farm and uh, 125 years before we got out of it, and it's all houses north of Detroit now, but man, our farm's just a youngster compared to 1761. Yeah, no, when you look back, it's uh, I look back at pictures from the early 1900s and what the farm looked like uh, back then. I hear some stories that my dad used to tell, and yeah. it's... Uh, it's a different time, but uh, we're still here and we're still farming, and that's the right. key, right? The boys are pretty interested in coming back to the farm, so maybe we'll have a 10th, 11th, and 12th generation. I'm thinking back where we started and, and coming, first coming no-till, say with those, those cultures on that case planter, and, and now we're looking at hydraulic downforce and individual row. It's just amazing the technology that it well, has been much more than 20, 20 some years, how things have changed Good. as well. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, Appreciate it. In this edition of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series, we have a bonus for you. A few weeks ago, we heard from a podcast listener who asked for more details on how No-Till got its start in the Eastern Corn Belt. It reminded me of an article one of the No-Till pioneers had written about his personal experiences with No-Till back in the mid-1960s and 1970s in Eastern Ohio. The article was sent to us by Jerry Greiger, who has been involved with no-till for decades and now serves as the state agronomist for the National Resources and Conservation Services for the state of Michigan. He also no-tills the family farm. 
This next segment of today's podcast article describes the no-to experiences of Donald Myers, who was an Ohio State University Extension agronomist in Eastern Ohio. I hope you enjoyed Don's look back at the history of no-till as narrated by no-till farmer managing editor, Julia Gerlach. Having been recently assigned as the Extension Agronomist for East Central and Southeast Ohio, it was brought to my attention in April of 1966 that an agronomist at the Agricultural Research and Development Center at Worcester, Ohio, had begun investigating a system of no-tillage crop production. At that time, it was called the no-plow system. I contacted Dr. Glover Triplett, who with considerable enthusiasm indicated that we needed to test and learn much more about the system in actual farm fields. My area of concentration in Ohio was hilly rolling terrain, which represented unglaciated or outwashed ground from the Wisconsin Glacier that was very susceptible to erosion. The primary crop rotation among growers in this area was a four or five year corn, oats, wheat, and hay sequence. The challenge was to follow the hay crop in the rotation and plant corn into this sod without plowing or tillage. Extension agents and soil and water personnel, as well as word of mouth, provided a source of possible farms for a demonstration planting. In early May of 1966, we arrived at several farms with a crude corn planter, which was adapted from the then standard farm planter. A cutting coulter had been added ahead of the shoe type opener that was commonly used in tilled fields and press wheels were attached. We quickly found a major problem was a lack of adequate soil penetration, seed placement, and seed to soil contact. The vegetation in the previous hay field was effectively controlled with the herbicides atrazine and 2,4-D. These herbicides were, of course, the innovation which made it possible to consider no tillage. Initially, we didn't understand what we were trying to demonstrate with the no-plow system. In some instances, we were involved in a small field, usually at the back of the farm, which had not been plowed for years, if ever, due to stones, stumps, poor drainage, and vigorous vegetation. We achieved adequate success, though, enough to encourage us to continue the demonstrations in 1967. Increased understanding of what the objectives were by the participating farmers made it possible to select more viable and appropriate fields. By this time, the no-till corn planter had been modified with a disc opener and a rippled opening coulter, both of which greatly improved seed placement. The 1967 demonstrations occurred across a large number of counties and farms holding in-the-field meetings during the growing season. The demonstration unit we were using was a two-row corn planter, although most area farmers were using four-row units. By 1968, Triplett worked with Alice Chalmers and modified a four-row planter for no-tilling. While planting the demonstration plots across southeast Ohio during 1967, Dr. Triplett noted many pastures which appeared unproductive. Upon discussing these pasture concerns, we agreed that beyond grazing management and soil fertility, a limiting factor was unproductive forage species growing in these pastures. Seeding productive forages in these sloping, shallow, eroded soils was difficult and nearly impossible with tillage. Triplett reasoned that we should attempt to develop a no-tillage renovation seeding system. A new herbicide, Paraquat, along with 2,4-D, would replace the tillage. A western grassland drill, which staffers at the Ohio Agricultural Research and Development Center had obtained, was designed to be used in the Plain States for planting wheat. It was a heavy-framed drill capable of soil penetration and seed placement. From 1967 into the 1970s, we were establishing both no-tillage corn and forage systems. 
These forage seedings were also of extreme interest to soil and water conservation districts due to their great soil conservation value. On July 4th in 1969, the no-till concept received both national and world attention when a huge rain event occurred over North Central and Eastern Ohio. Area fields received six to more than 10 inches of rain during a 12-hour span. Massive soil erosion events occurred on tilled fields with only limited soil loss in the no-tillage corn and forage plantings. This was well documented at the United States Department of Agriculture's Soil and Water Hydrologic Station near Coshocton, Ohio. The actual soil loss calculations from this event received wide publicity, and suddenly the significance of no-tillage was verified. A limitation to the expanded use of the no-tillage forages was lack of availability of no-tillage drills. Initially, a small drill, the zip seeder, was used, which was normally used to seed winter annuals into Bermuda grass in the southern states. This was followed with short-line equipment companies filling the void. Among these were no-till drills from Ty, Melrose, Sodbuster, Moore, and Great Plains. Field demonstrations continued during the 1970s, especially on total demonstration farms that were supported by the Tennessee Valley Authority. During the early 1970s, the no-tillage program was given a great assist when the Chevron Chemical Company placed field representatives in Ohio. Among these in 1973 was Bill Haddad, known to many as No-Till Bill, who with great enthusiasm promoted no-tillage with many farm tours and huge field days over the next few decades. From this beginning, Ohio became the no-tillage leader, and with the enthusiasm of crop producers, continues to serve as a great example of what can be accomplished with no-tillage crop production. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Brian Newcomb for today's talk. Similar stories can also be found in Frank's book, From Maverick to Mainstream, which is available at notillfarmer.com forward slash notillmaverick. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovations podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about No-Till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.